It's appropriate before we approach God's word that we come in prayer before this king of whom we've been singing. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge this evening that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and so been declared to be Son of God in power. Lord, we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And until then, we pray that you would strengthen us for the task of proclaiming the message of salvation by grace to all who will hear. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to use us and even to strengthen us tonight. Lord, we pray that we might eat of heavenly bread this evening. For Jesus' sake, amen. So are you able to wait for good things to come your way? Or do you tend to grasp after them? It was in the 1960s that uh, the scientists at Stanford University performed the infamous marshmallow experiment on several four-year-olds. These children were given a marshmallow and promised another if they could wait 20 minutes before eating the first one. Some kids could wait. Others couldn't. Scientists then tracked these children into adolescence and beyond in order to see how their lives turned out. And they noticed certain trends among those who had waited and among those who had not waited. The ones who had waited to eat that first marshmallow were found to be better adjusted, more dependable than the others, even scoring some 200 points higher on college entrance examinations. Well, this cruel experiment was to prove the importance of deferred gratification. That is, waiting before you enjoy something that you really want. And this deferred gratification is supposedly a personality trait important for life success. Problem is, deferred gratification is more and more difficult in our day. Such a premium is placed on getting what we want, when we want it. Somebody said, patience is no longer a virtue in our society, but rather a waste of time. You know that ours is the instant gratification generation. And even so, some say instant gratification takes too long. People desire an even quicker fix to their problems, more immediate fulfillment of their desires. Technology, of course, only adds to this. The sheer speed with which information is exchanged is mind-boggling. Twitter is only the latest example. People are doing it all the time. Some people even tweet in church. So I wonder if you are willing to wait for anything, to have any of your desires fulfilled. Or have you, perhaps without even knowing it, fallen victim to the instantaneous gratification syndrome. You know, the fact is, life brings to us things we'd rather not have. Our wise plans, they get interrupted. Our cherished dreams, they sometimes get smashed. God's place and God's pace are not always ours. And so then, how do you handle that? 
Well, let's turn this evening to Psalm number 130 in order to find the answer. Psalm 130. If you're new to the Bible, just pick one up in front of you and turn to the middle of the Bible. You'll find the Psalms and then search around for number 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Friend, you know the time will come, if it has not already come, when you will be forced to set aside cherished dreams and ambitions. You know, Christians are people who have admitted that their plans for life aren't the most important thing in the world. God is. When our plans come tumbling down, we're called by this psalm to wait, and to wait patiently on the Lord. If you're new to Christianity, or if you perhaps came in, you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be helped to know that this psalm presents four realistic aspects of the Christian life. We're going to consider those four this evening. First, affliction. Yes, affliction. I know you wouldn't expect that from much of the prosperity teaching that you may see on television, so popular today. You might think that following Jesus was about instant gratification. Having your best life now, enjoying today and embracing tomorrow. But I want to suggest all of that sounds very different from the psalmist here in these verses. He begins by saying in verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. You see, self-help may pull you out of the shallows of life, but it cannot rescue you from the depths. The depths are a hostile place of watery, chaos, darkness, confusion, death. And there comes a time in life when you will meet adversity that is beyond your control. It happens to every one of us at a certain point in time. I wonder if you've been there in the depths. Maybe you've come in this evening and you're there right now. What can you do? Well, what did the psalmist do? He cried to the Lord, and then he pled with God to hear his cries. Notice that in verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So he prayed, and then he prayed for his prayer. This is nothing but a beggar's petition. This man has nothing to offer God in, in this moment. Nothing but his need. 
You know, when you face adversity, I wonder, what is your first instinct? Is it to worry or to pray? Prayer is the antidote to worry. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. Sometimes people who are in the midst of the deepest kind of affliction simply don't know what to pray. They don't know what to ask for. That's why these psalms are so valuable. We should pray in the path of the psalmist. Allow the psalms to guide you. As we said this morning, all the rest of the Scripture speaks to us, but the psalms, they speak for us. The psalmist stands in our place in many ways. These are inspired cries of anguish that can be valuable to you during your darkest times. They're given to us so that we might cry out to God in ways that honor Him. Of course, in a room this large with this many people, not all of us are in the depths this evening. But you know what? You would be wise to pray these psalms of, of lamentation regardless. Because the day is coming when you will wish you had cultivated even more of an intimacy with God than you have. The only one who can aid you when you descend. Let me suggest two things, just practical things that will help you deal with affliction, that will prepare you for suffering. One is very simply, regularly read the Psalms. All of them, for the full range of emotion of the Christian life. I was talking to a brother after the service this morning, and he told me, you know, I've not really read through the Psalms. And I was thinking, I don't know how I could have survived the Christian life without these 150 poems. Oh, saturate yourself in these Psalms. Prepare yourself. For the day of affliction. And then secondly, and very practically, get to know some older, more spiritually mature believers in this church and ask them how you deal with difficult times in life. They will probably know through experience. Ask them how they endured through hardship, how they were rescued from the depths. Faith is coming to the end of your resources and relying on someone else's. Let me tell you, if you're struggling with affliction now, know that it didn't come to you by accident. No, these things are designed for us. The Lord brings trials into our lives in order, as James says in James chapter 1, to perfect us, to prepare us. He leads us to the depths, but pearls lie down there. If you're a believer and you find yourself in the depths, take heart. God has you exactly where he wants you. Say along with your countryman Samuel Rutherford, when I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. This psalm teaches us about affliction. It's a part of every Christian's life. Well, there's a second aspect of the Christian life that we learn about this evening, and it's repentance. You see, affliction comes to us for any number of reasons. Maybe the death of a loved one, maybe unemployment, maybe sickness or threats. But sometimes it comes to us due to our own fault. Not all the times. Just read Job for that. There is a category in the Scriptures for innocent suffering, but sometimes suffering comes our way because we deserve it. 
And you know, affliction is especially difficult to endure when we realize we brought it onto ourselves. And that's the case here in this psalm. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Sin is the disease. Affliction is just the symptom of the deeper disease. The psalmist here pleads guilty as charged. No excuses. No blame shifting. So if God, who not only knows what we do, but why we do it, if he kept a record of sins, no one could stand before him. We would all fall as we considered this morning. We would collapse before the judgment seat of God. So have you come here this evening in the depths because of your own sin? Do you feel perhaps even now conviction for things that you have thought and said? If so, where can you turn? What can you do? Well, amazingly, this psalm says you can turn to your judge. Look at that in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. What we see about this holy judge in Scripture is that he also grants pardon. He grants the forgiveness of sins for all who will turn to him in repentance. Don't you see, this is the good news of Christianity. It's not that we really aren't all that bad anyway. No, the truth is we're all a lot worse off than we think. But God's grace superabounds more than we could possibly dream. This is a God who forgives people of their sins. If he kept a record of wrongs, no one could stand. But God saves us, not because of our own moral virtue, not because we clean up our own acts, but because of his grace alone. After all, that's why God sent his son Jesus into the world. Remember the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ? It was a harrowing depiction of this man who was being tortured and afflicted on the cross. But the problem was it never told us why. Why did the Son of God come into the world to be crucified? The reason was in order to save sinners from condemnation. As the scriptures say, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared righteous, freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the good news. On the cross, Jesus bore the full penalty for the sins of anyone who would turn and believe on Him. My non-Christian friend, do you see, if you've come this evening and you feel under the weight of sin, don't you know that you can find redemption by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and embracing Him as your Savior? You can receive Him there in your seat this evening. There is nothing that need hold you back from embracing Him as your Lord and King. That is the good news. And notice carefully what verse 4 says, especially if you're here as one who's not a believer. It says, with God there is forgiveness, not will be, not may be, is, regardless of what you have ever done. Receive the gift, the fullness of redemption that is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on Him. 
And if you're here this evening as one who's been walking with Jesus for years and years, what does this say to you? It says many things, but I just want to zero in on one. It says we can be honest with ourselves and with others in the context of a local community. You know, the gospel means we're not justified by our works, but by a free gift of grace. Our pedigree, our intelligence, that's not what commends us to God. No, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so we don't have to pretend to be people we're not. We can be honest in confessing our shortcomings, our sins. We're not saved because we got it right. So if you, as you sit here this evening, realize that you're defensive when it comes to receiving criticism, maybe you need to go deeper with the gospel. Maybe you need to learn to receive criticism without being shaken to the core because your identity is found not in your own performance, not in what others think of you, but rather in Jesus Christ himself, the one who reigns in heaven even now. This good news should enrich your community here at Charlotte Chapel. This good news should enable you supernaturally to go deeper with your relationships in such a way that the world coming in from the outside will stand up and take notice. I know that was instrumental in my own life when I came to know the Lord about 14 years ago. It was in part through observing robust Christian community of people who were living for something other than their own reputations. Well, this good news is so great, it should make us tremble. You see that in verse 4? With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Strange that forgiveness results in fear, isn't it? We don't expect it to say that. But you know, fear of this sort is not the slavish, servile terror. No, it's rather an appropriate reverence, a godly fear, standing in the presence of a holy God. You know, when sinners begin to see the magnitude of their sin, when they begin to be awakened to what could have been, the product is godly reverence. Ours is not a trivial joy. No, ours is a weighty deeper emotion, more like what C.S. Lewis called a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. All of this is produced by genuine repentance, a second aspect of the Christian life. Thirdly, the Christian life involves longing. It involves a deep desire for something. Remember, the writer of this psalm had offended God by his own sin. That's why he was down there in, in the depths, crying out. He knew that forgiveness was found in God, and yet something was seemingly missing. His fellowship with God had been broken by his sin, and he needed to be restored. Notice verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning more than watchmen wait for the morning. As we said earlier, my family and I live in a Muslim country, United Arab Emirates, bordering on Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf. In that country, most of the Muslims there believe that if they follow the rules, then God will give them stuff. He will give them material blessings. He will heap them upon them. Indeed, they think that's why they've got the oil. That's why they've got the gas. 
Of course, it's not just Muslims who believe that. It's also Hindus and Sikhs and nominal Christians. They want God to give them things. Cars and jobs and health and relationships. You know, that's not a religious impulse. That's a human impulse. But what about the psalmist here? Is he waiting on God's blessings? Or is he waiting on something else? Verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Do you sense the longing for communion with this God? For reconciliation? He longed for it more than a weary watchman who's been sitting through the watches of the night waits for the dawn. That's what the psalmist desired. He desired to be with God. So it would be good for you to ask yourself, is this what you desire? Have you ever wondered if you would be happy in heaven if God were not there? Friend, if you would be happy in heaven if God would not, were not there, you won't be there because you desire God's blessings more than you desire Him. You've obviously not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know, our heavenly hope is about something more than a pain-free existence. It's about something more even than reunion with loved ones, and manicured golf courses. No, our ultimate hope, the best thing about heaven, is that God is there. He's worth waiting for. You know, God's people have always been awaiting people. So in the Old Testament, they were waiting for the Messiah, the revelation of God. And we await His second coming. They awaited a definitive sense of pardon and forgiveness. And now we who have received that down payment, we now await for its culmination, for its perfection and conformity to Christ. God's people are, by definition, awaiting people. So are you waiting on the Lord? Are you longing for Him more than watchmen wait for the morning? You know, impatience is a clue for you. If you're one who struggles with impatience, it might be a clue that you're not waiting for Him. When does impatience arise? Well, it arises when our plans are interrupted or shattered. We react with anger or despair. We don't trust that God's really in control of things. Whether it's too long of a wait at the checkout line at the grocery store, bad traffic, or whether it's a tragedy that knocks out half your dreams. The way forward is to hear God's word and to wait for him. John Piper put it very well when he said, wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. Wait in his place, go in his pace. That is the Christian life. It is part and parcel of a longing with a repentant heart, even in the midst of affliction. But there's one more aspect of the Christian life that we see in these verses. One final aspect is hope, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7 and 8. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. 
Hope in God will sustain you when nothing else will. From the depths, this psalm writer was exhorting his fellow Israelites, hope in the Lord. When all else fails, hope in Him. John Bunyan knew that when he said, hope has a thick skin and will endure many a blow. It will endure all things if it be of the right kind. The question is, do you have the right kind of hope? Why is it that hope is so valuable, so powerful? Why should we hope in God? Well, the verse tells us why. Verse 7. For, there's the reason, with the Lord is unfailing love, and with Him is full redemption. You know, there's a riddle in the Old Testament. How is it that a God of such holiness who hates sin can also forgive it? You remember what he said of himself, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, but yet doesn't leave sin unpunished. That's the riddle. How can both of those things be true? The answer was shrouded in mystery, even for the writer of this psalm. Among all the saints of the old covenant era, the answer was shrouded. But in the fullness of time, hundreds of years later, God sent his son. His son entered into human history. The Messiah, Jesus, came and took on human flesh and lived a life of perfect righteousness and holiness. And he bore the penalty on the cross for the sin of all who would ever repent and believe on him. He died on the cross not for some of their sins, but for all of them. You see that? With him is full redemption. Just as Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, the last verse reads, He Himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. If you're new to the Bible, this might be uh, a bit odd. I mean, what do we have to do with Israel? Well, I think it can be cleared up like this. The night Jesus was betrayed, He held a last supper with His followers, His disciples. And at this supper, he took the cup, and he gave thanks. And Luke tells us, he said to his followers, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus had come to establish a new community, a new Israel, those who would be the beneficiaries of all the promises of old. And if you, even tonight, will turn in repentance from your sin and put your trust in this Messiah, then all of these promises of the old era will be yes and amen for you. You can receive the joy of a reconciled relationship with the creator of the universe simply by putting your faith in Christ. That's what the Christian life is all about. It is about affliction in a fallen world. It is about repentance before a holy God. It's about longing for Him to return. And it's about hoping for that ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ. It was Jonathan Edwards who observed, To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. They are but scattered beams. 
but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the ocean. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge that all of the promises of the old are yes and amen in Christ. We give you praise for Him, our hope of redemption. We thank you that He has accomplished it for us in His work on the cross. We praise you for His vindication and His resurrection from the dead, for His ascension in power to the right hand of the majesty on high. Oh, Lord, we praise you that our righteousness is with Him in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would embolden us with this message of hope. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds as we set our hearts on things above where Christ is. Oh, Lord, would you be glorified through our communion together. For Jesus' sake, amen.